So it was a Sunday. Jenny and I had been married a year, maybe just a little more. And it was, we we're in that phase where um, when you go out, like everything still feels like you're on a date. It's really a good phase. I mean, I love that. Before you have kids, you know, like everything you do. So we, we go to church and then we go out and we're just going to grab some lunch at this little outdoor cafe. And we're, um, we sit down, we go to this market and it's like a, the sun is shining. In fact, this is what it felt like. Yeah, the sun's shining, and it's happy. We're sitting down in this outdoor cafe. It's just me and my radiant young bride, and, and we're going to sit down. We're going to have this beautiful little lunch together. We've just worshiped Jesus. My heart is full. And so we sit there, and I look up, and my beautiful bride is ripping off a piece of bread from her sandwich and getting ready to toss it to some birds, which sounds sweet, something like Snow White would do. Now, what, what she doesn't know, though, is that I have a history with these birds. Do you, do you know what this bird is? <laughs> At the time, I worked as a valet. And, and I had a history where every day these birds would swarm around me. And if you've ever, ever seen these birds, they're always angry and annoying and pestering. Like, if they could poke out my, peck out my eyes, they would. Like, if I made a horror movie, those birds would be in this movie, okay? These birds are, are spawn of the devil. I hated these birds with a vehement, seething passion. It was a deep-seated hatred in me. And what I didn't do is I, I didn't take the time to explain that to my radiant young Snow White-like bride there. Instead, I looked at her, and with all the hatred I could muster, I leaned across the table and said, Don't! Feed the birds. <laughs> now, I don't want to pretend to know what was going on in that pretty little head of hers. But she looked at me. The bread's in her head. Her head cocked. She smiled and staring directly at me, took it and threw it. <laughs> <laughs> to which I was like, no! Do you know what you've done? Then I proceeded to explain to her my history with these birds and how these birds will ruin our lives and ruin our lunch. And she has just proceeded to help the spawn of the devil. It was a classic, like, miscommunication. She thought I was being hateful and controlling. Like, why would I speak to her that way? Like, what's going on? Why is Paul so hateful and mean suddenly? We're having this perfect lunch. Why is he committed? me. What's going on here? Of course, I felt vindicated when just moments later one of them pooped on her. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was my evidence that God had vindicated me. <laughs> Sometimes I think we have the same type of miscommunication with God. That God will say, you can't do that. And we're like, but I can like, why, why are you so hateful and controlling right now? What's going on here? I thought we had this good thing going on here. What, what are you speaking down to me for? Why are you seething with this hatred right now? What's going on? God sounds hateful and controlling. His commands, they don't make any sense. We don't know why God is so passionate about doing this and not doing this. So we can excuse ourselves if we just ignore or reinterpret what he just said, even if he plainly said it. 
then we wonder why life poops on us. Okay, so this scene, that's, that's exactly where we're at in our story today. We're in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you want to grab your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to pick up the story of Elijah here. And what we're going to see is that for about 50 years now, God's people have ignored God's word. So God says very clearly, you read the Old Testament, you read the Torah, he says very clearly, where do you worship me? You worship me in Jerusalem alone, in my temple, in the place where I will have my name. And they say, really? God says, you shall make no graven images. Make no image of me. And they're like, you know, I thought you were like a cool God. Like, why why do you have to be so controlling? God says, sex is between a husband and a wife. And they say, but, you know, who can really put boundaries on love? God says, don't make other things ultimate in your life. Have no other gods before me. And they're like, God, what are you doing? Don't be a hater. Why do you have to hate all these things? You know, I can love you and love other things. It's cool. God sounds hateful and controlling. You see, they don't interpret God's commands in context of what the Bible actually says. Because if you read when God gives these commands, he actually says explicitly, Deuteronomy. I've just been reading that in my morning quiet times. And over and over and over again, in the first 11 chapters, he'll say it five different times. Be very careful to follow my commands. Why? So that you can live. So that you can experience my blessing. Like God's commands, he says it explicitly over and over again. The reason I'm giving you these commands, don't do this, do this, is because I love you. I want you to flourish. I want you to have the deepest, richest possible life. And see, the thing is, is they've stopped reading their Bible, so they have no idea for that. They don't read God's commands in the context of, that he gave them. They read God's commands in the context of their culture And in their culture, anyone who would say those types of things is controlling and hateful. So God must be controlling and hateful so we don't have to do that. So they go, they do whatever they want for about 50 years. And then for the past three and a half years, when we get finally to the story of Elijah here, when we get to 1 Kings chapter 18, for the past three and a half years, God has basically let them experience the consequences of life when you disobey me. God has let the giant birds of life poop on them. He says, okay, I'm not going to provide for you for anymore. You, you want to trust your gods. You want to trust money and sex to provide for you. I'm going to show you something. When I withdraw, they can't provide for you. And so there's no rain, which means there's no crops, which means there's no economy, which means there's no life for three and a half years in the land. It's terrible. So for three and a half years, they have to learn why God told them, do not trust in false gods. Pick it up here. Verse 1. Verse 1 says this, after a long time, in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go present yourself to Ahab, that's the king of Israel at the time, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now let me just catch you up on these first 15 verses before we get here. Uh, So Elijah goes, he leaves... He's been living with his widow. He goes to present himself to the evil king Ahab who's been following the Baals and leading God's people in the wrong direction. And along the way, he runs into a guy named Obadiah. 
Obadiah is this head guy in the, in the kingdom. He, he's a servant of King Ahab. And Elijah says, hey, I want a face-to-face meeting with Ahab. To which Obadiah says, that is a terrible idea. You know he's trying to kill you, right? It's a terrible idea. Don't do it. And Elijah says, no, I really want to meet him. This is God's plan. God's going to bring rain. And with the promise of rain, Obadiah sets it up. And here's where we pick it up in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, King Ahab sees him. He says to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Like, this is all your fault. Do you see what's happened to our land? It's all your fault. Like he thinks that because Elijah announced God's devastation, God's word, that it's all Elijah's fault. But in fact, Elijah's going to say, no, it's because you abandoned God's word. That's what happened. Look at this. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to see right here that God, we're going to pick up the story right here where for three and a half years they've suffered and they followed this evil king and they followed these Baals. And here's the question that we want to ask. What is God going to do with his people when he finds that they've completely abandoned him and followed other gods, when they've cheated on him in the spiritual sense? What's God going to do when his people no longer know who he is? They think he's a golden cow. They no longer know what his commands actually are. What's God going to do when his people have let the world's culture define the reality? What's God going to do when he finds his people saying that they follow him? They still think they're his people. They still think they worship him. But in fact, they also worship Baal. They also worship sex. They also worship money. You see, Ahab and God's people might have started this, but the Lord, he's going to take the initiative with his broken people. And this is what we see in verse 19. Now summons the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Just a reminder, Baal is the god of money, Asherah the goddess of sex. And so Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the, assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. So this, this is the scene right here. This is Mount Carmel. We want all the prophets to come here. This is, this is it. This is the come to Jesus moment, okay? This is decision time. We're going to have this out once and for all. God says, you can't have it both ways. We're going to take all the prophets of Baal and we're going to take my one prophet and we're going to decide which way this nation is going to go. Who's the real God? Verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Like if the Lord, all capital, that's the word Yahweh, I am that I am. If he is God, then let's worship him. Let's let him tell us what to do in our lives. Let's let him tell us where to live. Let's let, let him control things. But if money, if that's really your God, well then worship that. But quit pretending. This is an interesting translation. It says, how long will you waver between two opinions? I actually think this is probably an overly generous translation. Uh, right now, Jenny and I are actually considering, we're redoing the master bathroom. 
And wavering between two opinions, that's what we're doing right now. It's like, oh, should it be the white subway tile with the gray grout? Or the gray subway tile with the white grout? Ah. I mean, that's what this sounds like, right? God or Baal, God or Baal. I mean, both are real options. What, what do you feel? In the Hebrew, and some of our more literal translations, the ESV, the NASB, it shows it's a little more graphic. It literally says, how long will you limp? How long will you go on limping? And it's the image. I, it, it, we, we don't really think about this because we live in a, a world where, where we actually take really good care, or we try to, of people with disabilities. Right? So if someone can't walk, we, we, we had to spend 20% of our reconstruction, like our, our cost at Briggs Street, when we fixed that, uh, our office space there, 20% of the cost had to be towards handicap accessible things, according to state law. Right? We, we take care of them. But if you're in this ancient world where you're handicapped, where you're limping, well, everyone had seen this. This is the image of someone who's got a couple of uneven sticks that they're trying to drag along their useless feet. Like they had seen this, and this was not a pretty sight. This is terrible. And that's what God says. Like, if you try and follow God and you try and follow Baal at the same time, you're going to limp through life. It's, it's debilitating. Like, the very nature of who you are and the way the universe is, if you try and follow God and something else, it's going to be terrible. Your life is going to be disabled. You're going to limp through life. You see, our, our relationship with God is, is like marriage. It is not supposed to be a contract like, I'll do this for you, you do this for me, tit for tat. It's not that. Marriage is a covenant. It's an exchange, not of goods and services, but it's an exchange of persons. And every, every marriage ceremony I preach, I make this crystal clear. You are not saying, I'll do this, I'll take out the trash if you, you know, clean the windows. That's not what it is. It says, I am giving myself to you and you are giving yourself to me. I will give you me, and you give me yourself. It's, and once you get me, you get everything else. And, and part of the words that I say in every ceremony I've ever done is this. It is an oath that no one and no thing will ever take your place in my heart or in our home. And that's part of every marriage ceremony I've ever done. That's what you're committing. And guys, that's what a relationship with God is supposed to be. He says, I'll be your God and you be my people. You get all of me and I get all of you. All of you. Like everything. And that's the way, the, the thing is, is if, if in your marriage, if I were to go to Jenny and say, Jenny, I love being married to you. And you know, I, I still want to be your husband. Absolutely. But I've been thinking, I would love it if I could maybe spend some time with this woman too. You know, it's not a big deal. I just like to sleep with her. Maybe start a family with her. But that's, no, I still want to be your husband. Now, Jenny would kill me, but if I somehow survived that, our marriage still wouldn't survive that, would it? Like, it just doesn't work. The very essence of what a marriage is, it's an exchange of persons, it's self-giving. To add someone else in there is to destroy it. And that's what God says about him. The very nature of our relationship is that no one and no thing should ever take his place. The people of God, for them to act like they can keep God and add money 
and add sex and add their career and add all these other things is like a person thinking that they can stay married and add in someone else. Let me tell you, that is offensive, that is selfish, and that is destructive. So he asks, how long? How long are you going to keep limping along like this? Pretending like it's working, but it's not working. Make up your mind. If, if you're going to follow God, follow him. But if, if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people said nothing. You see, to not make a decision is to make a decision, isn't it? To say, no, I'm not, I can't pick between you and someone else. So God's going to force it. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450. So get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put, put the wood on the altar, and, but do not set, it to fi- set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put, it the, and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, I want you to see this. Like in the context, like imagine, let's go back to the marriage illustration, right? Imagine someone's cheating on their spouse. Like you come in and you catch your spouse in bed with someone else. What are you going to do? Are you going to try and woo them over? Are you going to try and win them back? No, you're going to be mad. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be irate. You're going to be hurt. You should be. But God finds his people in bed with another God. And what does he do? This is pure grace. He says, let's go back. I'm going to prove myself to you. You don't deserve it. You've ignored me for years. You've cheated on me. Later, the prophets will call this spiritual adultery. And what does God do to these offensive, selfish, destructive people? He loves them. He loves us. We ignore God. We cheat on Him. We deny Him with our lives. And He pursues us. He comes after us. He says, I'm going to take the time to prove myself to you again and again and again. And I'm not going to give up on you. All the people said, what you say, that's good. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, so you go ahead and choose. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there's so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. And I want you to see here what Elijah's doing. He's giving everything on the side of Baal. He's giving them first choice in everything. This is at Mount Carmel. This is Baal's country. They get the first choice of bull. They got 450 prophets on their side. And not only that, he says, you know what the proof is going to be? We're going to let it be fire from the sky. That is Baal's specialty. That's what everyone thought in the myths. That, that, that's what Baal did. He hurled fire from the sky. This is Baal's show. So come on, Baal. Show us what you've got. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, all morning long. Baal, answer us, they shouted. I mean, this is his place. 
I mean, this is what he likes. I mean, this is what he does, right? He hurls fire from the sky. Come on, Baal, show us, show us how powerful you are. Show us how you can save people, how you can f- provide for people. Show us. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced. Literally, they, they limped. The same word that Elijah used earlier. They limped around the altar they had made. You see, there's no problem with their worship. There's a problem with their God. And then at noon, Elijah, just picture this. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a God. Maybe he's deep in thought or busy traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be wakened. Okay, so have you ever, um, have you ever met one of those older men in particular? Who, like, they've lived so much of life that they cease to care. <laughs> like, really, like, they're, they're the type where they just say whatever's on their mind. You're like, sorry about that guy. Like, they just, if, they, if they need to pass gas right there, they will. They don't care. They're not trying to impress anyone at that point. That's Elijah. He's that guy. He's like, oh, look, look at all of you. The whole world's against me. I don't care. And he starts right here, what, it becomes a long-standing tradition among the prophets, the art of shamelessly mocking false gods. It, it's true. I mean, if you read through, um, Isaiah is really good at this, but Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea, those are the big ones that really do this well. There is a tradition of mocking all false gods. In fact, you know what the number one word for idol is in, in the New Testament in Hebrew? Gilol. Can you say that? Gilol. Gilol. Yeah. So if you read through Ezekiel, you'll see, like in the Old Testament, 48 times this word occurs. Gilol. Gilol. People worship their Gilol. In Ezekiel, you'll see they worship the Gilol. They, they, they bring their presence to the Gilol. He actually says they commit adultery with the Gilol. You're like, like they love their Gilol. They kiss it and they take care of it. You know what Gilol literally means in Hebrew? It means ball of poop. (laughs) Literally. Yes. So what's Elijah saying to this massive crowd of dancing prophets? He's literally saying, shout louder. Surely he's a God. Maybe he's deep in thought or busy, literally relieving himself. Maybe he's sitting on the toilet making more idols for you to worship. (laughs) Or traveling or something. Come on, Baal. And this old man mocks and mocks. Here's the scene. 450 prophets who sincerely believe that Baal is God. Like their faith is absolutely sincere. They, they're, they're beating themselves and dancing. It's, they're, they're praying all day long. They're passionate. They're fully committed. And the entire nation is watching. And these people who are watching this, they're terrified of Baal. He's, he's the almighty God of money. He's the God who can make you rich or poor. He's the God who can take life and give life. He's the God who can determine your future. He's the God that's so powerful, he can demand that you sacrifice your children to him. And in the midst of this is one old man sitting there, mocking. You know, we live in a world today where people think that the loving thing is to never, ever, ever judge or question what someone else believes. That the loving thing is tolerance. 
that we should let everyone believe whatever they want. And I tell you what, Elijah, he would probably be charged with a hate crime in today's world. But here's the question. What, what if the thing that the person believes is a lie? What if the thing that someone believes is actually holding them captive in life? What if the thing that they believe is actually destroying them, causing them to limp through life? What if the thing that they believe is leading them to an eternity separated from God? Is it loving to not tell them? I'm not suggesting that we mock other faiths. But we might do well to recognize that any belief system that does not recognize Jesus is Lord, at the end of the day, it is Gilal. Only when the Israelites sit there and watch this old man mock, only when they see that Baal's helpless to defend himself, only when the people, be, only then do they begin to realize that they don't have to fear Baal anymore. Like, he doesn't have real power over them. So watch this. So, the prophets, what do they do when Elijah starts mocking? They shout louder, and then they slash themselves. This is how passionate they are. They cut themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. They are sincere, devout, committed followers. This is passionate worship, unlike anything we've ever seen. And midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. They are sincere, they are passionate, they are committed, but in the end, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And it had nothing to do with their worship, it had nothing to do with the quality of prayers or the quality of their faith, it had to do entirely with the fact that the God Baal doesn't exist. Verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, Come here. And they came down to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And let me just summarize this is a large section here. He calls in all the people and says, I want you to come here. I want you to see this, because there's no trickery involved in this. This is going to be real simple. And he goes to the top of the mountain, and up on the top of the mountain, there had one time been an altar that was to the one true God, to Yahweh, to the Lord. And he says, what we're going to do is we're going to take these 12 stones that had once been an altar to God, and we're going to find those stones, and we're going to repair this altar. That these 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, they're going to all come back together again, and then we're going to stack up the wood on top, and then you know what we're going to do? We're going to dig a trench all the way around the altar. And then he says, now I want you to take these large buckets of water, and I want you to dump it on top of everything. And they do it once. Water's just gushing down. He says, now do it again. And they go get more water and they pour it on top of the altar with the, the, the bowl and the wood and the, and the rocks and now the soil is completely saturated and he says, oh, let's do it one more time until it's entirely filled. It's soaked. And then at the time of the sacrifice, the time when, when God had said his people were to stop and pray to him the time of true worship, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed a very, very simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the God of this people, even though they don't know you, Lord, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. 
that it's not Baal's mountain, this is God's mountain, and that I am your servant and have done all these things according to your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you are Lord. You, Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. God, let them know that that though they've cheated on you, you still want them back. Let them know that though they've forgotten you, you haven't forgotten them. Let them know that though they've gone after all these other things, that you still want to be their God. It's such a simple prayer. There's no dancing. He doesn't cut himself. He doesn't take a long time. It's so simple. It's even unimpressive in some ways. That the greatness of his faith has nothing to do with a big demonstration. Like it's not long. It's not ornate. That the greatness of his faith has nothing to do with outward expressions. It has entirely to do with the one in whom he is trusting himself. You see, Elijah's faith doesn't have to be outwardly great. Elijah doesn't have to be impressive because his God is impressive. Look at verse 38 here. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. Have you ever been next to a giant fire? When I was growing up, we used to have these, uh, we used to have these huge bonfires in our back, and I was just a kid at the time. And you would get a little bit close and you could just feel the heat. I mean, from like 20 feet away. And you would hear this. It is terrifying. And it is inspiring. And it's awesome and it's awful. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. In the end, this wasn't really a contest. Baal is a God who doesn't answer because Baal doesn't exist. When God's people realize that Baal is powerless, that he couldn't provide the rain, he couldn't answer prayers, he couldn't stop an old man from mocking him, he couldn't send fire from heaven, when they realize that they've been serving and worshiping a God of their own imagination, when they realize that they've been lied to and some of them have actually sacrificed their children to this horrific false God, They then turned on the prophets of Baal. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there's a sound of a heavy rain. Hasn't rained in three and a half years. And he looks at the king and says, God's blessing now that the prophets of Baal are gone, now that everyone knows who the true God is, blessing's going to return. And he goes up, climbs up to the peak on the top of Mount Carmel there. And he prays. And then he sends his servant to go see, to look out at the sea, and there's nothing. And then he prays. And he sends his servant to go look, look out over the sea, and there's nothing. And he prays. And he sends his servant to look, and there's nothing. Seven times, and on the seventh time, the servant responded, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot, and go down before the rain stops you. 
And meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, and the wind rose, and a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel, and the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel, and God's blessing returns. His people acknowledge who he is, and he's going to provide for them. So what's God do when his people no longer know who he is or what he commands? What's God do when his people have let the world's culture define their reality? What's God do when he finds his people saying that they want to follow him? They really do. But they also want to follow money and sex and let other things in their life. He comes after them. He sends his prophet Elijah to say, No, God still wants a relationship with you. But he doesn't just send his prophet Elijah. He sends his very son Say, I know what you've done. I know you've cheated on me. But God still wants a relationship with you. And and he proves himself again. Not just fire from heaven, but his very son who would die on a cross and say, this is how much I love you. And not just the power of fire, but the power of resurrection. That the ultimate force in the universe is not your money. It's not your sex. It's not all the things that we worry about. You shouldn't fear those. You know why? Because there's a God who loves you so much that his love can conquer death itself. That there's nothing that Jesus Christ cannot conquer. And he has. And he's come after us. That no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've turned away from him, no matter how many times you've cheated spiritually, he wants a relationship with you. It's humbling. But at the end of the day, it's your choice. Because you can't do both. You can't say, I want to control my own life and I want God to control me. You can't say, I want to follow Jesus and I want to follow my career. You can't say, I, I, want to, I, want, I want God to define me and I want to define myself. It doesn't work that way. Like the very nature of a relationship with God is exclusive. It's a covenant. He says, I've entirely given myself to you. That's what Jesus Christ is. That's what identifying with him is. That's what it means to put your faith in him. He says, I want to give you myself. But here's the deal. You've got to give me yourself too. Like for this relationship to work. Like he gave up everything for us. But you've got to give up everything for him. So that's the question. It's just as relevant today as it was 2,900 years ago. What are you going to do? There's a God who loves us. A God who says, don't limp through life. Like, I want you to be my people. I want to be in a relationship with you. Are you going to think his commands are just hateful and controlling? Are you going to say, maybe I should trust him. Maybe I should give up what I've been clinging to. And let him take control of my life. At the end of the day, it's supposed to be a covenant. I am yours and you are mine. That God wants us to pray, just as in the weddings I've done, no one and no thing will ever take your place in my heart or in my life. Do you want to have control over your own life or do you want God? You can't have both.
That's Elijah's question for Israel. That's Elijah's question for us. Let's pray. Father, um, I don't pretend like this is an easy question. It wasn't easy for the Israelites, and it's certainly not any easier today. God, I I know that there are people here um, that, that have never actually taken that step to let go of what they're holding on to, Lord, and, and trust you for their life. And God, I, I pray that, that your grace, that you would come after them, that you come after us, Lord. I pray that that would break their heart right now and that, that they would realize that those false gods, that their career, that their money, that their, all the other things they cling to for security, Lord, at the end, they can't provide for them. That you alone are God. God, that our prayer would be, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God, I I know also, though just speaking for myself, uh, God, that this is a prayer that I have to pray over and over and over again. Even if I've made that decision once, Lord, just time and again, things creep back in my life that I want to trust in, that I want to make ultimate in life, that I want to turn into a God. God, I uh, just... I, just speaking for myself, Lord, I give those up to you right now. I recognize that you have power to provide, that you answer prayers, that you alone are God. God, I pray that that could be the prayer of all of us who want to follow you. We thank you for your son and your grace, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.